Thank you, Walt, and that youthful worship team. It's just beautiful. I would love to look at those lyrics of Arise, O Church of God, again, that, that we were singing. I must tell you, one of the great delights of my life in ministry is to partner with leaders here at Grace who really are all into getting the message of the word across, like Walt and Kenny, especially I'm thinking of now, as they lead worship for us primarily. Walt called me on Wednesday and said, I'm really trying to get my head around this theme. Could you help me know where you're going? Our worship leaders get into the texts we're preaching as if they're preaching them themselves. And it's a beautiful example of a ministry that's shaped by the Word of God and not just what songs may be popular or what may show your musical chops sufficiently for your liking or what, what songs people just like stylistically. I hope right from the beginning of the service you're listening to the message being taught through sung worship and prayer and scripture reading and the other readings we do. It's beautiful. But... In, in many ways, this song, O Church Arise, really gets the point across of today's message of the church as a barracks. Listen to these words. O church, arise and put your armor on. Hear the call of Christ, our captain. For now the weak can say that they are strong in the strength that God has given with shield of faith and belt of truth, will stand against the devil's lies. An army bold whose battle cry is love, reaching out to those in darkness. I love that. Our battle cry is not death, but love. I had a football coach in college who, especially when we were playing arch rivals, he, when we were coming off the line running sprints at the end of practice, he would make the team all yell, hate as we came off the line, as he's trying to conjure up some hatred toward our enemy. But our battle cry is not hate, but love. We come with the battle cry of love. It's a, it's a great perspective. Reaching out to those in darkness, we realize there is great evil in this world, but we have great compassion for those who are caught up in this evil, and we reach out to those like our, our vision here at Grace, our mission here at Grace says we, we reach out, we engage, and we evangelize to those in darkness. Our battle cry is love. And then it says this, our call to war to love the captive soul. There it is again. Christians are in a war. And in the midst of the war and the opposition to legitimate evil in our world, we have deep love, self-sacrificial love, reaching out to those who are captive, and we rage at the same time against the one holding them captive. And with the sword that makes the wounded whole, I'm assuming the, the writers of this hymn are talking about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, as the Bible says, it makes the wounded whole. It doesn't bring more wounds, it brings wholeness and healing this sword. So this imagery of military battle is really important, but we need to see it in a very Christian, through a Christian lens. We will fight with faith and val valor. When faced with trials on every side, we know the outcome is secure. Just beautiful. And Christ will have the prize for which he died, an inheritance of nations. Is that great stuff? Oh, that's some deep sung worship right there, isn't it? That is not Jesus is my boyfriend kind of music, people. That, that is just beautiful. 
uh, a powerful picture of who God is for us. And this morning, we think about the church as the place where soldiers gather, the barracks, the place where we come in from the battle, from the war, and we, we equip one another to get back out into the war and engage in the battle. This is a place that the soldiers find rest to get ready to go out again. This is the place where we find equipping and toughening and strategy and thinking about engaging the battle with confidence and seriousness with our armor on. Oh, church, arise and put your armor on, all drawn from powerful biblical images. But it's so important that we recognize the interdependence of the images of the church we've been talking about for the past five weeks, pictured in this beautiful picture that our dear Danielle, our sister here at Grace, drew for us with her amazing artistic ability. I am so grateful for people who are gifted in ways I have nothing to offer from, but look at this. So we, we've got these five images of the church. The first on your left is the church is a temple where we worship God, increase our intimacy with God, and that's the foundation for everything else we're doing. But even that needs to be informed by this, this second picture of a home. We worship, but as a family, not just as worshipers offering ourselves as sacrifices, but as a family. We do that together where we find love in a family sort of way. And so we have a home. And then we have a school, as Randy helped us understand, where we learn Christ from the word of God, from the truth of God. And realize how important it is that our family is shaped by what we learn from God's word and our understanding of worship in the temple is shaped by understanding of God's word and how the word needs to lead us to worship. And the school needs to lead us to understand what it means to be a family better. These work so beautifully interdependently. And then we've got a hospital because this world messes us up and we're, we're wounded and we're broken and we need healing in this world from our greatest brokenness, which is our sin, which Rob helped us so beautifully understand that the church is a hospital. But this morning we think about gathering as an army an army of soldiers, and these need to work together. There are times in our lives because of the seasons of life that it's okay to come to the church primarily as a hospital because you're especially feeling the, the, the woundedness of life in this fallen world, that, that you need healing, and it's okay to emphasize that and lean into that especially. But you can't come to the church exclusively for one or two or three of these images. They need to work together or else they'll get imbalanced and, and warped, and you'll have a perception of the church that, that isn't holistic in what we're called to do. And so we need to see all of these images of the church that the Bible teaches us as really important to work together. They work in, incredibly interdependently. And this morning, as we think about what it means to be soldiers in Christ's army. We, we've got to continue to make sure we're thinking about worship in the temple and loving as a family in the home and learning together as we join in as students and, and as fellow broken healers in the hospital that is the church. But this morning, it's the place where the soldiers gather to get ready to go back out into battle. And all these things are working together, worship and word and fellowship and service and giving and proclamation and suffering together to the glory of God. And we realize that we as God's people gather 
to enjoy our God together and to become who he calls us to be. We're disciples, and we're forgiven children, declared righteous by God, but we're also soldiers. When you're adopted into God's family, you're also enlisted into his army. And I know this can be confusing in a world that's filled with war that we hate, that's actually part of the curse that we should oppose. What does it mean for us to be engaged in warfare? Well, it means we recognize that a battle does rage, but our weapons of warfare are so different than the weapons of the world. It's love and peace and the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ reconciling the world to himself. It's lives of self-sacrificial love like Jesus showed, and it's engaging at the same time with boldness and courage in a warrior mentality that doesn't reduce Christianity just being nice people. It's way bigger than that and way deeper than that. And so this idea of a soldier is one we find throughout the Bible. Epaphroditus is called by Paul not just his brother and fellow worker, but his fellow soldier. Archippus is also called a fellow fellow soldier. Paul calls Timothy to share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And then he adds, and no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. His aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Doesn't mean we don't engage in the regular realities of life, of going to work and changing diapers and sitting in traffic. But it does mean we see everything we do as framed by this warfare that exists in our lives, and we're going to unpack what that means. We've got to know what our true enemies are. And I think a helpful way to think about the primary enemies we face as Christians is a very traditional way to think about this, that is, you back up and look at what the Bible says about the battles we engage and the warfare we're in and what our real enemies are, it's pretty helpful to define them as the world, the flesh, and the devil. If you'd open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, we see those three enemies clearly displayed for us in this really important passage for this idea we're unpacking this morning. Ephesians chapter 6. Help us, Lord, as we go to your word. Look at Ephesians 6.10. Here are our enemies. Ephesians 6.10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm, Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. 
take on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert, with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. I'm telling you, if we took this passage more seriously, we would not fritter our time away on social media the way we often do. We would, we would not see life as something to simply be trivially engaged with, thinking that Twitter is a good way to spend hours and hours of our day, or fantasy football for that matter, or, or so many of the other things that, that don't get us ready for warfare. Now, I'm, I'm not legalistically saying those things can't be a legitimate recreational outlet in our lives, and whatever your equivalent is, of that, you, we all have those, right? Maybe People Magazine, I don't know. I don't know what your, your spiritual McDonald's is. That's one comedian put it, but, but don't beat up on people who don't have the same battles you have, but we've all got them, I've got them. I can go in rabbit holes like anybody else. You know that kid who caught that winning touchdown against Alabama last night, I, I Went and found out about him, and I way, know more, way more about him than I, I need to know. I could tell you, but I could talk to you about it for 20 minutes. About, and, and, and that's when I had a sermon that I still had to finish up. <laughs> you know, his, his dad is in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> We've all got it, right? I'm not trying to beat you up for whatever your thing is. Your things are that get you distracted from wartime living mentality, but people, we've got to get serious. I mean, did you hear that description of the battle we're in? No wonder we get blindsided all the time in the battle. No wonder we get sucker punched all the time in the battle. And a bout of serious suffering makes us doubt and wonder about whether God loves us instead of saying, oh yeah, I'm in a war here. And when I became a Christian, the war intensified far beyond what I ever realized. I now have enemies I didn't have before. I now have a war I'm engaging in I didn't uh, engage in before. We, we've all got to take seriously this war. Did you hear how it's described? And did you hear the enemies? Be strong in the Lord and put on the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Look, the first one is the schemes of the devil. There's the devil, the, the world, the flesh, and the devil, remember we said were the three big enemies. There's the devil. There's the spiritual powers of darkness against us, the cosmic rulers, the, the evil in the spiritual realm that's the foundation of our ministry. He's not saying they don't fight on a fleshly level. He's just saying make sure you realize that what's behind the scenes in the flesh battle is spiritual powers of darkness. And so put on the whole armor of God. Don't get sucker punched by these things. Realize we're in a battle, and we've got to know our enemy well. And so th this is the perspective we've got to have in this. If you go quickly to Ephesians 2, we see the same sort of mentality that we've got the devil that we're fighting, but look, look what else we're fighting. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead, not needing more time or better education or better social programs or not needing uh, better parents, not needing to meet God halfway, <laughs> dead 
and the trespasses and sins in which you, whence you once walked. In what way was that? Following the course of this world. There it is. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Following this course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirits that now in the work and the sons of disobedience, picking up on what we just saw in chapter 6, the, the spiritual powers of darkness... And there's the flesh, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature like the rest of mankind. So there it is. The world, the course of this world, the flesh and the devil. And we've got to know our enemy in the art of war. Sun Tzu said this, If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself but not the enemy... For every victory gained, you'll also suffer a defeat. But if you, know, and if you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you'll succumb to every battle. So our goal this morning is to know our enemy and to know ourselves in light of who God is. And so the world, the flesh, and the devil is a theme we see in passages like this, but also in the parable of the sower. Jesus describes the different ways people can relate to God and consider themselves Christians that, that sometimes get destroyed or choked out or, or weakened by the world, the flesh, or the devil. Jesus' temptation at the beginning of his public ministry is really temptation Satan throws at him that's the world and the flesh and the devil, and those all work together. So we're born, booting up, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the passions of our flesh that we battle on a daily basis. So let's think about these enemies one at a time, the world. Now, the Bible uses the word cosmos, translated here world, in different ways. We can't be simplistic in the way we approach words in the Bible. They will mean sometimes very different things depending on how they're being used. There's not just a plug-in definition for words. You need to understand them in their context. We all understand this, right? Lots of different ways to use lots of different words. Cosmos, world, can mean just the creation. The Bible uses it that way. Sometimes it can be used to just talk about people. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. I think that has broader ramifications for the, the world as well. Moyer Hubbard can tell you. He's an expert on the, the whole idea of the world and what God's doing in it. Moyer, raise your hand for after the church service. You can. You are. You are. Come on, you do. You know what I'm talking about. Um, raise your hand so people. There can be a line of people, and you can answer their questions as, in so, a sufficient way that I can. So, uh, yeah, the world can just mean the creation. The world can just mean people, but the world can mean, as it's used here, a, a system, a pattern, a way of thinking that's embedded in this cursed and fallen world that's in radical opposition to God. It's fighting against God and his ways. And the idea is, is that, that we are very naturally as fallen people imprinted with that pattern. That's why the Bible says, no longer be conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. We start off being conformed to the things of this world, the things that are opposed to God. It can be indifference to who God is or opposition to his good design. It can just be committed to pretty empty things and passing values. 
That's why John says in 1 John 2, don't love the world. If anyone loves the world, or anything in the world, he says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father's not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does not, does the will of God abides forever. Now, this is a really important tension we get well as Christians. And I remember as a kid even, just kind of being perplexed by this tension because in the family I grew up in, in the church I grew up in, we would sing two songs quite a bit that seemed to be completely contradicting each other. Sometimes we'd sing them in the same service. We'd sing, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up for me somewhere beyond the blue. Oh, yes, it was Baptist. It was a Baptist church. Anybody know that song? This, oh, wow. Yeah, this world is my home. I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up for me somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Oh, that's so true. But then the organ would crank up. And we'd sing, this is my father's world. And I'd think, well, which is it? Which is it? Is this world not my home or is this my father's world where I should be quite at home because it's his? And the Bible then tells me he gives us everything to enjoy. And you see, navigating this very wisely is a key for Christians because we've got to appreciate both of these realities that this is our Father's world. It's His, and Jesus is actually taking it back, and we're part of taking it back with Him as His people. And it is His world, and He gives us everything to enjoy. And so we don't fall into some world-denying legalism, but we realize the Bible also talks about the world in a way where we don't love it. When it's using that word world in a way that's opposed to God and His ways. If you don't have a sophisticated understanding of this, you're not going to be able to reconcile how John tells us to not love the world. And then we read that John says that God so loved the world that he gave us his son. Yeah, by that it means the people in the world. But when when we're thinking about the world that's our enemy this morning, we think about it as this system that's opposed to the things of God. James goes this far. Do you not know friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Do you like to be friends with the world? Do you like to flirt with the world in this sense? Well, it's so black and white. Make friends with the world, you're an enemy of God. Wow. Wow, that's powerful. You know what's a word I realize doesn't get used barely anymore that got used a lot when I was a kid? People would say, He's worldly. <laughs> I don't hear people talk that way anymore. That, that sounds so old-fashioned. Well, it's a really helpful way to think. I, I don't want to be worldly. I don't want to be saturated with worldly thinking that's opposed to God. And the challenge of this is, like, like we're he- learning here, is we start off this way. And the first step is to know the difference between worldliness and godliness. And, and be able to discern the difference. A lot of us assume we just know the difference. And the world teaches us, just look within, you'll find all the truth you need. But the Bible doesn't teach that. It says we need our powers of discernment trained to distinguish good and evil. 
or else we won't even be able to tell the difference. Not only won't we be able to tell the difference, we'll end up flipping them and call evil good and good evil. And we got plenty of that in our culture. And even seeping in the church very often. And so we don't want to be indifferent or opposed to God's good design. That's profoundly unloving to be that way. And so Paul tells us, don't be pressed into the mold of the world. Don't be conformed. It'll be transformed. That's what we're trying to do right now. That's what we do when we gather as a school. But also as a, as a hospital and a family and as worshipers and, and, and this morning as soldiers. We're trying to be transformed, and I believe it's happening right now. That's why I love to preach, and I love to sit under the preaching of the word, because I believe it's a source of transformation, as in everything we do when we gather as God's people. The name of this series is Gather, and it's so important we realize how desperately we need to gather, to gather under the word, and in prayer, and in worship, and in serving, and in giving, and in proclaiming, and suffering together and the fellowship of the saints, and developing a mission view of the world. It's so good to have Nate here in the midst of this message because he's, he's a shining example of somebody who's engaging as a soldier, going to an even tougher place than where we live in this battle in many ways. Some ways, not as much. He'll, he'll tell you that. We, we have challenges they don't have in really tough places. Even though in balance, the, the, they're sacrificing greatly but but we need to gather to find discernment and strength and understanding or else we won't know that's why we gather it i think one of our greatest problems it certainly is one of mine is that i assume i'm way stronger than i am that i know way more than i do that i got things figured out way more than i do Anybody see this picture this week, Rob? Could you put that photograph up there? This cracks me up. Anybody see this news story this week about this painting? Yeah, it's hilarious, Matt, isn't it? So this is a painting that is hung in a Dusseldorf, Germany museum for years, 75 years. The author died in 44. And his, one of the, this is one of his famous paintings. He's a Dutch artist. And... An expert came in because of a show they were having, and they said, this painting is upside down. (laughs) Now, I don't want to use this as an illustration of art or the value of impressionism. That's not where I want to go with this. We can have some fun with that, but that's not where we're going to go with this. The artist came and said, the the art expert came and said, you see this painting? It's called New York, and it's so obvious that that's a dark sky at the bottom. You've got the sky where the ground is. That needs to be flipped, and here's the really funny thing. They're afraid they're going to damage the painting if they flip it right side up, so they're just going to leave it. It's going to leave it the way it is. Now, how do they know this? Well, because of the title the author gave it. And because they have a photograph of his studio the day he died. And this painting was on an easel with the closer lines at the bottom. (laughs) 
They had to go to the author. And it's funny, we live in an age where people say, oh, it doesn't matter what the author thought of a painting or a book or, or anything. It's irrelevant. We're all our own interpreters. But no, they want to get this one right. Say, no, your, your painting's upside down. How dare you question my interpretation? No, they've got a very clear interpretation of whether this painting's right side up. I love this because if we're going to know right side up, we've got to go to the author of creation, and we have the author's word on what's right side up and what's upside down in his word, so we need to know his word. And so when we gather in all the ways we do as God's people, we've got to do it going to the author to find out what side is right side. We need to know God's word and his ways and love and live them with increasing pressure on the on us all the time to conform to this world and living upside down rather than right side up. And it's amazing to me how, how much the world opposition to God thinking can seep into our thinking and our affections and our lives as the church. Maybe nowhere worse than in the United States. You know, we've got a lot of great things in the church in, in, in this country, but, but man, we've got some serious seepage. J.I. Packer said the job of a theologian is basically to run a sewage treatment plant and weed out all the worldly thinking that's constantly trying to get into the minds and hearts of God's people. There's a lot of truth to that. So much that just seeps in and before you know it, we talk like the world, we look like the world, we act like the world, we think like the world. It's just amazing. You know, a, a major 100-year-old Christian university just decided this week that all their faculty doesn't need to sign on any longer for their statement on Christian sexual morality. They're just giving them a mulligan on that one. And so, so in the church, we, we just, we so want to look like the world very often. That we're willing to compromise God's ways which alone lead to life and to goodness and righteousness and wholeness and life. And you know, in, in this country, we, we have the, the amazing privilege of being citizens who are invited into the process. It's not like that in a lot of parts of the world and in human history, but, but we have that privilege it's really amazing, and, and I don't want to act like there's a Christian view on a lot of things that come up politically, but sometimes there is. You know, I often think, if, if I were a Christian in Nazi Germany, would I have been able to have the perspective to back up and say, wait, this doesn't fit. One of the most sobering experiences I've had in my life is going to Hullenthal, this little town my grandfather grew up in, and going into the church and seeing a list of World War II vets. The first time I ever saw a list of World War II vets that were on the other side fighting for Hitler, and there were four Tonnises on there. My family. I thought, would I have been able to back up and see things for what they are? I think the same thing about living during slavery. I mean, all these ways of thinking, twisting Scripture and interpreting it in bizarre ways to justify slavery as Christians. It's so easy to say, oh, they were crazy or evil. No. 
Most of the time, they were nice Christian people who just weren't backing up and seeing things for what they are and, and engaging in a culture that had just too much seeped into their minds. You know, and, and, and I don't claim to be an expert on politics, but every once in a while, something comes along like this Proposition 1 that they're trying to pass in California. I'm not getting political here. I'm getting theological. That thing's evil. Sometimes it's not sort of, well, you know, and so we've got to take advantage of this privilege we have to engage societally that we all have to, to make a difference, to be those who help claim the captives out of our love for them from a really twisted, God-opposing way of thinking and living and passing laws. I don't think the answer lies in politics ultimately, but, but the, the spiritual powers of darkness fight in every realm, every realm. I, I love that, that there are people here at Grace who are, are diving in in a renewed way into this process, but, but we've got to realize that, that we engage against a world of evil, the world, the flesh, is, is the other enemy, our corrupt inclinations and disordered passions. Rob did a great job with that last week, so I don't feel like I need to spend much time on it this morning. But listen to what 1 John 3, 8 says. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And so when we give ourselves to our fleshly passions of youthful ignorance, we're letting the enemy of our own flesh Take over. I love that rattlesnake illustration that Rob used last week. I, I've often thought of this phantom pain. It's just wild. You know, a soldier will lose a limb and he'll swear to the doctor that his, his foot that isn't there anymore is in agony. It is. It's not there, but it, man, it, it's causing pain. It's causing difficulty and distraction. And, and the old man, the flesh in us, has been put to death and we now live by the Spirit. But man, it sure can feel pretty alive. And then there's the devil, which is a real personal enemy, a fallen angel, the father of lies, who's always at work relentlessly to twist and distort God's word. And so we've got to go to war with our enemies of the world, the flesh and the devil. Here are some practical applications. Nine, to be exact. Yes, nine. Watch, watch this. One, <clears throat> We need to prioritize. Prioritize the gathering. When we adopted my son Sam, we took him to church his first Sunday with us, and he did not enjoy it at all. Boring. He's a high energy. He's a spirited lad. Did not enjoy it at all. And when he heard us talking the following Saturday night, he picked up that we were going back to this place again. And he protested vehemently. What? We're going back there? We already went. We're, we're going again? Oh, yes, Sam. Not just tomorrow. This will be our home away from home. This place will become as familiar to you almost as our own home. This is a place we're going to go all the time regularly without discussion without debate, without wondering, and he was really upset for like six weeks. But it was about three months later, I'll never forget, we're driving in the van, and Donna says, hey, I haven't seen so-and-so. Where is he? 
And I said, oh. And I, we weren't being all judgy in the front or anything. I just said, oh, he's got a hobby that takes him away from church for sometimes months at a time. Just a hobby. And I hear in the third seat, little Sam, little six-year-old Sam go, what? <laughs> what? We turned our libertine into a legalist in six weeks. <laughs> he, he was just appalled that this family would take months off for a hobby. I think he had some right to feel that way. Church should be for us a non-negotiable, a priority that we plan other things around. And this idea that, that media inter... Um, media-mediated fellowship is somehow a close second is dead wrong. It's just wrong. It's, it's, it's totally different. Now, I'm helpful. I came back with Jordan Weaver. Jordan, are you in here? I thought I saw you. There you are. Jordan, a few weeks ago, Jordan and I were coming back from Hume. We both preached up at Hume together, and we were coming back, and we pulled up our worship service on that live stream, and the people driving by us, or that we were driving by, probably more like it, um, must have thought we were crazy because we were in there belting out these hymns and praying and listening to the announcements when Christy did them. I was thankful for it, but we both were longing to be with our people at the same time. And so, so we've got to make it a priority, a non-negotiable priority. Not just the gathering on Sunday morning, but like our membership commitments say, with smaller groups and grace groups and people where we're going deeper and with our diversity value in place, we're getting to know people who are different than we are on a regular basis, and that's where so much of our effort goes. Two, we need to be disciplined. And we need to come to church to be disciplined. Not in some formal judge way, but, but to become more disciplined people. That's why we come. I hope you don't just come to feel good, but I hope you come to be disciplined in the best sense of the way where we're all coming like a good soldier to grow in our discipline. Listen to one, what one pastor says, Grayson Gilbert. At some point, the conviction came to me that church was non-negotiable. What's more than this, I came to believe church attendance is a non-negotiable for every Christian. The reason is so that believers in formal corporate worship will gather as the New Testament teaches us to in our time together. That's to be the most precious thing we partake in as Christians. I believe that regular attendance is so important it reveals our hearts and priorities. It reveals much of what we treasure and likewise much of what we don't. It especially reveals what we understand about the person of Christ in his saving work on the cross. We recognize that our, our disciplined lives lead us to regular gathering that changes us and equips us and prepares us as we become part of a local manifestation of the very body of Christ. It's beautiful. The corporate gathering is all about experiencing Christ and putting Christ on display in our lives and in our words. And so we live with sober confidence then. Serious confidence. Hopeful brokenheartedness. We gather as God's people and we find our unity. That was actually number three. Sober confidence. I remember we were in an elder meeting one time. 
And we just had heard that another Christian leader had fought, failed morally. And one of the elders said, guys, we need, a, we need to stay vigilant. Every, any one of us could, can fall morally as a disaster any day. And Walt goes, I don't think I could. And we're like, what? What? Pride cometh before the fall, Walt. But I'll never forget what he said. He said, you know, I've been at this a long time. 60 years I've been following Jesus. I got some armor on. I got some toughness. I got some experience. I see sin for what it is. I'm adding a little bit maybe here. I don't know. I'm just sort of preaching the sermon I heard. Yeah. And, and he said, you know, I got Sherry speaking truth in my life. If, if that was there to waver in my relationship with her, she'd know it. My relationship with her is in such a good place. I'm not going to be able to slip much at all before she knows. I got a lot of people in my life who love me. I'm committed to the people of God. He goes, I don't think I could fall tomorrow. He said, I think it'd take at least six months. Ah, <laughs> oh, that was fantastic. Because on one hand, we need to have confidence. You know, when, when you're a runner, when, when you're a weightlifter, you put time in, you, you become stronger, you become faster, and that lasts. You can eat donuts and sit in a lazy boy for a long time before that all goes away. But how scary at the same time to realize that 60 years could go in six months. So we don't need to be afraid of these enemies. We need to take them seriously. The Bible says that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he'll destroy. And so we need to have an understanding of sober confidence. But we need to have an understanding of our unity grounded in our identity. We're on the same page. We're on the same team. We got the same master. We got the same goals. Um, one of my friends, Jeff, grew up in a really racist family in a racist area where he grew up. And, and he, was, he was racist. And he went to East Carolina State University to be a defensive tackle there. And his roommate was a black guy. Jeff was white. And not only was this guy his roommate on the team during camp, he played right next to him on the D-line. So basically, on a daily basis, for hours a day, they depended on each other to keep their heads from being taken off by the other guys, the, the enemy, right? Jeff said it took two weeks for all that racism to go away. He said, two weeks. He said, being on the same team, with the same goal, with the same enemy, put everything in perspective. I'm dependent on this guy, and he's dependent on me, and it changed everything for him. When we see ourselves grounded in Christ, not by all the differences we're constantly encouraged to know ourselves by, but by our identity and unity in Christ, that's when we will start to have the same goal, the same enemies, the same master, the same motivation, and we will have a unity that will give us a strength as soldiers, and we need to seek interdependence. We need to be interdependently living, both receiving and giving on a regular basis. That's number five. Number six, we need to play defense and offense. We need to protect ourselves, but we also need to get after it, engaging in the battle. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church, and that just doesn't mean the gates of hell are going to come after us. It means we're going after the gates, and we're going to rip them out by their moorings and set the captives free. We're on the move. We're not just protecting ourselves. That's why we go to 
difficult places to serve. And it's all about Jesus, number eight. It's all about him. Did I skip one? It's like, it's like between, I'm going to do like between six and nine. Is that good? So six and nine. So if I got to six, just be happy, right? Nikki tipped me off, though. All right, here's seven. Here's seven. You want seven so bad, Nikki? Here you go. Oh, you just couldn't live without seven, could you? No, no. Can't go home without seven. What's that? <laughs> Crystal, she's going, I have five. Is that my fault or yours? That's what I want to know. I don't know whose fault it is. Who really cares? We're brothers and sisters in Christ. All right, here we go. I'll just read them to you. Here we go. <laughs> Prioritize gathering. Dis be disciplined. Did I skip that one? No, I didn't skip that one. Find our unity in our identity. These are good. I should do them all. Live with sober confidence. Seek interdependence. Play defense and offense. Seven, there you go. Gather to be equipped and equip. Be intentional. Eight, it's all about Jesus. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the son about which the whole mission of the church revolves, one writer says. Jesus is the son about which the whole church revolves. That's who we are, God's people. And finally, depend on our all-powerful divine warrior who goes ahead and fights the battle for us. God is a warrior. Listen to Exodus 15, 3. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Isaiah 42, 13. The Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a cry. He will prevail against his enemies. Listen to this picture of Jesus. You think that's just an Old Testament picture of God? Here's Jesus. At the very end of the Bible, the end of the New Testament, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were followers on him and white horses, from his mouth comes a sharp, sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron, a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We pray in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And that's our job in this world, to show what's going on in heaven and what will go down everywhere one day. Because Revelation eleven fifteen says, the kingdom of the world one day will become the kingdom of our Lord and, our, and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. We're on the winning side, people, as God's army. Let's pray. Lord, help us to live as if it's wartime, because it is. Lord, help us to think so differently than we typically do. Lord, thank you for uh, brothers like Nate and Jana who live in places where it's impossible to think like anything but 
soldiers. Lord, I thank you for their example. I thank you for the example of your people throughout the scriptures and throughout the history of the church that show us a wartime mentality. Lord, help us to live gathering, getting ready for war, fighting with the weapons of warfare that you've given us, not the world's weapons, but yours, the sword of the spirit, the gospel of peace, the good news of a God who loves and lays down his life to reconcile us and all things to himself. And we pray these things in the mighty and matchless name of that King of Kings. Amen.